Hello, everyone. My name is Trey Bearden, and I'm here with Teaching Pastor Mark O'Neill at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Lufkin, Texas. And this is the first episode of Reformed and Reforming, a podcast where we tackle common questions about Reformed theology. I'll start off by letting you know that I am not ordained. I am a layman. I've been a Christian for about six years. I've been a Calvinist for about two years, and I've been a confessionally Reformed Presbyterian for about a year. I say all of this to let you know that I am not an expert on the subjects that we will be covering. However, as you probably heard earlier, I am not doing this podcast alone. My partner in this podcast just so happens to be my pastor. So, Mark, why don't you say hello and tell us a bit about yourself. Where did you go to school? How long have you been pastoring? Etc., etc. Yes, uh, my name is Mark O'Neill, and uh, I am the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Lufkin, Texas. I have been the pastor here for 23 and a half years, and it has been my privilege to be the pastor of this church. I have a very kind uh, congregation to serve. I uh, graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary in California in 1996 with a Master's of Divinity. Uh, I know Greek and Hebrew, and I've been preaching through the scriptures uh, over the course of these number of years now. All right, now that we've introduced ourselves, you know who we are, let me give you a bit of an overview of why we're doing this podcast. So... One of the big problems in our modern era is that we are sort of detached or unhinged from history. Uh, generally speaking, our view of history tends to begin around the year of our birth. And oftentimes, we think we are the first people to do what we are doing. And if we do have enough historical awareness to realize that a previous generation has already tried something, we think that we, of all people, will be the first ones to get it right, and we don't give a lot of effort to examine what our forefathers did, and what they got right or wrong. We suffer, I think, from a combination of historical ignorance and generational arrogance. And I think this is especially true with respect to church history. Now, before you start thinking that I'm pointing fingers at people, I'm not. I'll be the first to take blame on this. Before becoming a Calvinist, I knew almost nothing about church history. So about three years ago, I thought Martin Luther was primarily known for making the printing press, which is horrible and embarrassing. But by God's grace, I have learned, and I'm still learning, a tremendous amount of church history. And I think that my former historical ignorance is not an anomaly either. I know many Christians that have very little awareness of church history, and that's really sad because as Protestants, especially Reformed Presbyterians, we have a very rich heritage. So in this podcast, we're going to try and help familiarize you, the listener, with historic Reformed faith, with the historic Reformed faith, uh, by uncovering and explaining historically Reformed beliefs and practices. We want to show you that these practices come from Scripture. We want to address common objections and give you practical application uh, advice on how to put these things into action so that you can uh, accomplish your chief end, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So 
Uh, I said earlier, I'm just a layman. So in each podcast, I'm going to be asking Mark questions from the viewpoint of a layman or a skeptic or just someone who's not familiar with the subject matter that we are addressing. In each podcast, we will be sure to give you definitions, scripture references, confession and catechism references, links to articles, and book recommendations if applicable. And all of this can be found in the description of the podcast on Anchor. So that's sort of our purpose. Uh, And now we're going to move on to the subject that we're going to be covering. And for today, and maybe the next several podcasts, depends on how this goes, today that's going to be the Christian Sabbath. So here's a brief outline of how we're going to go about that. First, we're going to start out with Scripture, and we're going to present a positive case for the ongoing validity of the Sabbath for New Covenant Christians. Second, we're going to address some common objections uh, to the ongoing validity of the Sabbath. Third, we're going to lay out some of the practical benefits of Sabbath-keeping. Why is this a blessing to you? Because we believe that Scripture teaches that Sabbath-keeping is absolutely It's not a burden. It is a blessing for us to keep. So we're going to try to tell you how this is a blessing. Uh, And finally, we're going to give you some practical advice on how to do it. Uh, What do you do? What can you do? What can you not do? Uh, What are wise ways to to keep this commandment from God? Um, So that's that's kind of the outline. And now I'm going to uh, hand it over to Mark. And Mark's going to present a positive case uh, from Scripture on why uh, the Sabbath is binding for New Covenant Christians. So go ahead, Mark. So one of the things things I want to say before I uh, get into some of the reasons why we think the uh, Fourth Commandment is still binding upon believers in the New Testament age is the fact that it is based on the Fourth Commandment, which is uh, fourth of the Ten Commandments that are given at Mount Sinai. And... Those are laws or commandments, and people will often say, well, if you're making me or telling me I need to keep the fourth commandment, then then I have to, then you're putting me under law again, and we're, we're under grace now. Well, that's, a, that's not a good argument. Um, Jesus, excuse me, John rather, uh, well, Jesus through John, uh, says in 1 John 5, 13 that, uh, his commandments are not burdensome. And we have commandments all over the New Testament that we as New Testament believers are required to keep. It's not that law has gone away uh, after the resurrection of Christ. We as Christians are still required to keep law, not to save ourselves. Law-keeping cannot save anybody. But uh, as those who are saved, those who have been redeemed, uh, those who have been forgiven and are now loved by our God and Savior, uh, the way we demonstrate our love for him, our gratitude to him for what he has done for us, is by living a life that uh, pleases him, which is a life that is in conformity, morally speaking, with the image of Christ. And it's not a burdensome requirement to keep God's law as a Christian, as an expression of our love for him. And so it's important to say that because a lot of people... Uh, think law keeping is, uh, is well, that's that's not for me. That's uh, I'm under grace. Yes, you are under grace if you're in Christ. But uh, if you are in Christ and under grace, you are required to uh, keep the Lord's commandments as an expression of your love for Him and your gratitude to Him. And so I just want to say that uh, at the top of the discussion. So as far as uh, 
reasons or biblical uh, reasons or explanations for why Sabbath keeping is uh, something that we as New Testament Christians are still required to do. To begin with, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. God himself, who is God and therefore has absolutely no need whatsoever to rest uh, because he is all-powerful, uh, he is the divine omnitemporal, that is, he's outside of time, uh, God of the universe and creator of all, he doesn't need to rest, and yet he rested on the seventh day of creation. Why did he do that? Not because he uh, needed to catch his breath, he did that uh, as an example to his image bearer whom he created in day six. Uh, we as uh, human beings are the only image bearer that God made. All the other animals, or all the animals I should say, are uh, do not have the image of God in them. We are created in the image of God. And we are, he is the great king of the universe, and he has appointed us to be those through whom he will rule over the cosmos. We are, if you will, the um, vassal kings, mankind is. If you didn't understand that, don't worry about it. But the point is, uh, we, we are to, God wishes to rule through mankind over the universe, and we are to subdue the creation in a God-honoring way. And one of the Ways we, or the principal way we do that is we imitate God. We are to be imitators of God. This, the, Paul tells us that in First um, um, Corinthians, I believe it is. And uh, the way we imitate him, among other ways, is we uh, keep the pattern that he set in creation, which is one day in seven, we are to rest after God, the pattern that God set for us in the creation week. And by the way, this is confirmed that we are to imitate God in that uh, in the Ten Commandments, uh, in the Fourth Commandment, in Exodus chapter 20 and also Deuteronomy chapter 5, actually it's not in Deuteronomy chapter 5, a different reason is given in Deuteronomy chapter 5, but in Exodus chapter 20, verse um, 11 and following, we are told there, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then he says, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy ox, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. And then he says, gives the reason. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and uh, all and the seas and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay. All right. Let, let me interject there. So in saying that, uh, all right, so that was given to Moses. Uh, obviously, Moses was uh, was a Jew. Uh, they were becoming a nation. They were Israel. Uh, and so in, in saying what you're saying, are you saying that it wasn't unique to Moses and the Jews? I am saying that. Okay. How? Why? Okay, because Jesus says in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God created, God rested on the seventh day and hallowed the day for man. 
after man's creation that man might follow in his footsteps. And the Sabbath, in other words, was not created for the Jewish man. Adam was not a Jew. He was not a descendant of Isaac, excuse me, not Isaac, uh, Jacob, who was also known as Israel. Uh, Adam lived thousands of years before the Jewish nation was ever created. And so did all those people that uh, followed Adam but preceded uh, Moses and, uh, or it was rather, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so you, are you trying to... So the Sabbath is for everybody. It's for all of mankind and for those that existed all those many years and de- uh, centuries before Israel came into being as a nation. Okay, so you're saying that the the Sabbath was not something unique to Moses or unique to Israel or what have you, but it's something that was, if you will, unique to mankind because it was unique to Adam. Absolutely, And yes. Adam being representative of all mankind. Although, interestingly, the animals also benefit from the Sabbath, as my <laughs> citing of the Fourth Commandment uh, just mentioned, that the ox and the cattle are to rest as well. You're not to, you're not to plow with your oxen on the Lord's Day, uh, the, the, the Sabbath, that your oxen might have a rest and enjoy rest just the way a man is to enjoy. But it's principally for man, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you've mentioned uh, Adam, and you've also mentioned Moses. So um, with, with Moses, we know that Moses uh, gave uh, the whole Mosaic Code, the whole Mosaic Law, and we and a lot of Christians uh, think that all of the Mosaic Law has been fulfilled, and they would say that the, the Sabbath would be one of those things that's been fulfilled and is no longer binding on New Covenant Christians. Uh, so how, how would you address that objection? If someone said, hey, look, Mark, uh, the Sabbath's no longer binding because that's part of the Old Covenant, and it's not here anymore. The Old Covenant's been done away with. So what would you, what would you say to that? Okay, so let me make some distinctions here that are, these aren't scriptural terms, but they are, I believe, very scriptural concepts. There are different kinds of laws that were given in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Actually, let me back up before I even say that. Let me say this. The Ten Commandments themselves that are found in Exodus 20 and repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments were not given at that time for the first time. Some people might think, well, the, it, was, it was okay to do some of the things the Ten Commandments forbid, forbid prior to their giving. That's simply not true. The Ten Commandments were in force uh, all the way back to the Garden. Uh, and you say, well, how so? Well, the Ten Commandments were imprinted on man's conscience. Uh, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 2. All men have a sense of what is right and what is wrong, of the law, if you will. Uh, And there he's speaking about the moral law. And he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law, written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And so you see, the point is, what happened at Sinai was merely a writing down of laws that already existed, that were already in force, that 
human beings that existed that lived prior to the time of uh, the giving or the the inscripturation of the law at Mount Sinai were required to keep. Cain murdered Abel, and he knew it was wrong. He knew he shouldn't have done that. Why? Because his conscience told him that it is wrong to take another man's life unjustly as he took his brother's life. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and I think this is uh, kind of a point that's unique to Reformed theology that I don't think that, I, I know that I was not familiar with this idea before I came to Reformed theology. Uh, so there was this idea in my mind, and I think in the in the mind of a lot of Christians, that if a law was not written down in stone or on paper by God, if you will, that it was not binding. And so this concept that you're coming with in Romans 2, 14 and 15, mm-hmm. uh, I think is, is unique to a lot of people. Um, so it sounds like you're saying that part of bearing the image of God is having the moral law written on your heart. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, yes. Okay. And you're also saying that the Ten Commandments are a publication of the moral law. Yes. Very good. The Ten Commandments are a publication of the moral law. And by the way, let me say this about being made in the image of God, uh, uh, man bearing God's image. The We know that the more we have the conscience and we know what that law, at least early in life, and if we ignore our conscience long enough, it sears and we no longer hear it uh, speak to us anymore. But we all start out with a conscience because we are made in the image of God. And the moral law is a reflection of the character of God, the moral character of God himself. And so by definition, the moral law cannot be taken away. Okay. It cannot be abrogated. Now let me get to a distinction uh, here. I, I, I was I was going to get there a few moments ago, and I, I wandered off. But there there are different categories of laws. Again, these terms are not biblical, but the concepts are biblical. Just like you never find the word Trinity in the Bible, but the Bible says teaches the Trinity all over the place. So we have what Reformed folks have historically referred to three categories of laws: moral law which is binding in all ages at all times because the moral law is derived from the character of God himself. God does not change, and therefore what is morally right and wrong does not change. And the Ten Commandments were the inscripturation and summary of that moral law. A second kind of law that is found in the Bible, and particularly in the uh, Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace, is... Ceremonial law. Ceremonial laws were laws that were created for a period of time, and they were designed to by God, given by God, uh, to the Israelites in particular, to teach them things about the coming Messiah, who was promised all the way back in the garden, in Genesis 3.15, and multiple, multiple times uh probably even hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament, references to this coming seed of the woman, uh, Mashiach, which is, we, we transliterate Messiah, which means anointed one. Uh, it's all over the Old Testament. And Adam and Eve knew about the Messiah. Uh, they didn't know much, but they did know God was promising to undo the evil that they had done through this seed of the woman. At any rate, my point is the ceremonial laws were given to instruct men, uh, to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. 
to cause them to uh, understand something about what the Messiah was going to do through his life and through his death and resurrection. That Messiah being Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed one, which is the same thing that Messiah means in, in Hebrew, Mashiach in Hebrew. So when you're saying Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus the Messiah. So the Israelites for 1400 plus years were to be looking for him. And the, the ceremonial law were types and shadows of Christ and pointed to Christ in various ways and the work that Jesus would accomplish. That's the second category. And the third category of laws was given to Israel as a nation. Israel was a church, the Old Testament church. We Reformed people think it was the church, uh, not distinct from the church. And also, we believe it was, uh, it's quite clear, it was not only the church of the Old Testament uh, age after Moses' time, but it was the it was a nation as well. And as a nation, it had laws that were given to them as a nation to keep civil order, to uh, to preserve the peace, and to punish evildoers. And that law was sometimes referred to as the uh, civil laws. Uh, of yeah, civil laws of the Bible. Those laws that had to do with punishing evildoers passed away, we believe, with the coming of Christ because Israel was done away with as a nation, as a church. The church in the New Testament no longer has the ethnic flavor that the church in the Old Testament did. And you didn't have to become a Jew in order to be a believer uh, now that Christ has come, whereas you did in the Old Testament age. You people would would become proselytes. They would become Jews. They would get circumcised if they came to believe in the God of of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even if they weren't born into that society. So, the only laws that are perpetually binding are moral laws, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment says, "Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy." Let me make one other point. The giving, excuse me. The inscripturation of the moral law is described first in Exodus 20. If you turn to Exodus 16, which preceded the giving of the law, the inscripturation of the law at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, the Sabbath is observed by all the Israelites prior to its inscripturation okay. on those tablets of stone that were then presented when Moses came down the mountain. And you're presenting this Why? I'm presenting this to tell you that the Sabbath was in force before the fourth commandment was written down on stone by the finger of God. It was in force. Why was it? Why do they know this? Because God did it in creation, in the creation week. And they knew that they were to be imitators of God, and that tradition was passed down orally. And godly people, believers of the Old Testament age, prior to what happened at Mount Sinai, understood that they had to rest and, one day okay. in seven. And so since you're saying that it's a moral law, you're saying the same reason they knew inherently, they knew that it was wrong to steal, mm-hmm. is the same reason that they knew to keep the Sabbath. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So it was imprinted on their conscience as image bearers of God, who is the personification of morality, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And image bearers can't help but know the moral law of their maker. Right. Even because, though they're fallen. Yeah. Even yeah. though we're all fallen, 
the, the image was not obliterated. The image of God in us after the fall uh, was not obliterated. And it remains, and explicitly we have New Testament texts to support that yeah. in Romans two fourteen and 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and part of the reason that God can hold us accountable, uh, even as fallen, unregenerate, non-believing people, part of the reason he can hold us accountable is because we have the perfect moral law written on our hearts. Now, we don't have the ability to keep it as unregenerate people, but we know it, but we reject it. We suppress the truth that we know. Exactly so. Okay. So, in summary, and this has been a very helpful thing for me, uh, the threefold distinction of the law. Uh, we've covered the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil law. So we say, uh, and we think Scripture says clearly, that the moral law is based off of God's nature and character. And since Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That's the end of the scripture. Uh, since that verse says that, that God does not change, mm-hmm. and since God's a moral character, he's a moral being, when he makes creations, other moral beings like us, that the law that he obeys is the same law that we must obey. And therefore, that cannot change because God will never change. Exactly. Okay. And the next part was the ceremonial law. And this is a bit more confusing uh, because the ceremonial law does change. And the reason, well, it's, it's just clear in scripture that it does change. Uh, the moral, uh, the ceremonial law, sorry, does teach us things about God, but he teaches us, teaches them to us in a way that can change. So if we think of the, the Passover that happened, uh, to Israel with, with Moses, mm-hmm. um, the Passover lamb was a type and a shadow of Christ to come. Right. Now, Christ was not a literal lamb, uh, but he was representative of a lamb. And he well, the lamb was representative yeah, of him. The, yeah, the lamb was representative of Christ. And then when Christ came, he was the fulfillment of that Passover lamb. Of that shadow. Yeah, of that type and shadow. He's the, the, the true and full fulfillment. And now we take the Lord's Supper, which we take with bread and wine, and that also, it's not a type and shadow, it's the fulfillment. But even it is, uh, if you will, kind of a shadow of what one day we're going to have. We're going to have Christ serve us bread and wine in heaven uh, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there's a constant message being taught to us about God, but he changes the way that he teaches us this message through different mediums, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why we say that ceremonial law can change. It can be different in the way that God tells us things. Yeah, and the ceremonial laws are derived from the moral laws, but they are not the moral laws themselves. They are applications of the moral laws of God, and that can change. The moral law cannot, but the way it is applied in redemptive history, depending on where you are in redemptive history, that is something that can and will change. So, for example, uh, just as long as we're talking about uh, ceremonial laws, there is a ceremonial component to the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment uh, initially was to be celebrated on the seventh day of the week. But we believe there is New Testament evidence and warrant for a change of the day that the Lord himself, uh, on the basis of his own resurrection from the dead, changed the day from of the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day of the week. So the day on which the seven-day resting principle 
came is has changed. That was the ceremonial component of the unchanging fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, so the the what was moral in the fourth commandment? I think you're saying is God, uh, who whose image we are made in, shows us by example to rest on the Sabbath uh, yes. on the Sabbath day and to mm-hmm. keep it holy. Yes, and that's the moral component. But you're saying the ceremonial component, and, and again, the moral component cannot change. Only when God's character changes that can the cannot. moral component change, and it cannot. Right. So, but with respect to the ceremonial aspect, uh, which is the day on which it is observed, you're saying that cannot that that can change rather. Yes. Okay. Yes, and and uh, we believe there's uh, evidence. It's implied. It's not directly stated in Scripture, but that the reason for the change is that our Lord who is the fulfillment of the Sabbath principle. He is our ultimate rest, uh, our source of rest. He rose from the dead, which was God vindicating what he had done in his atoning work on the first day of the week. And so the day moved from the seventh day celebration to a first day celebration. But the principle of resting uh, remained because it's a moral principle. Yes, and we're, so it's embedded in the fourth commandment, which is embedded in the character of God. Yeah, and the and, actions and, of God in the in the creation week. Yeah, and it's since it's because of part of since it's part of who God is, and we are also image bearers of God. So long as we bear the image of God, so we are still bound to keep it. Exactly, uh, and that can't change. I don't think that can change from old covenant to new covenant, uh, regardless of where you stand uh, in your Christian tradition. Uh, so to quickly recap, the last uh, category of law was the civil law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our confession says, and uh, this is Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, uh, part 4, to them, that is Israel, also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obligating any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So with the general equity statement there in, in uh, paragraph 4 of chapter 19, mm-hmm. whatever was Whatever part of the civil law that was moral in nature, that's the only thing that's left binding. Uh, everything else has passed away. Now, that's a whole other discussion on what exactly the general equity means, but not all of the civil law that was given to, to Israel as a nation is still binding because Israel is no more. Uh, as it, a nation. As a nation, yes. Israel is no more. And it is expired uh, with them. So that's that's kind of our brief. That's not very brief, but anyways, that's our attempt at a brief recap of the threefold distinction of the law. Now, Mark and I had Mark, we, you and I had talked about. Uh, you were saying something about the punishments of yes. uh, uh, crimes in in the Old Testament uh, in the nation. Yeah, in the nation of Israel. of Israel, and you were saying that there was something to do with the moral components yes. of uh, the, those crimes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Again, Mark. the nation of Israel had civil. Uh, penal sanctions, that is penalties, that were required by the the nation of Israel as a nation, not as the church, although it was the church, but as a nation, it was required to keep the peace and punish those who who were violators of that peace and who were disturbers of that peace. And the death penalty was instituted for certain crimes. And if you look through the Mosaic Law, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, and those laws where the death penalty was required, or those places where the death penalty was required, it was required 
for all of the moral commandments when they were broken by somebody. The death penalty was the required punishment. And the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, if somebody broke the Sabbath, flagrantly broke the Sabbath, they were to be put to death. As is the case for murder, as was the case for adultery, as was the case for stealing, so on and so forth. And uh, that, to me, is part of the evidence, not, not all of it, but part of the evidence that points to the fact that the, the, Sabbath, the, Sabbath, excuse me, the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment, was in fact moral, not ceremonial, but moral. Because uh, the, the fact that the death penalty was required for the, a breach of that commandment uh, points to that fact. Okay, so you're saying that if it was not part of the moral law, then it wouldn't be as an egregious of an offense. Correct. Okay. Ceremonial laws, when violated, were not punished with death. Okay. Okay, so now that we've got this this threefold distinction of the law, we've got the moral, ceremonial, and civil, uh, I've heard you say before that the Ten Commandments are a publication of the moral law uh, and therefore binding. So what if someone tried to say to you, well, the fourth commandment is uh, either a ceremonial law, purely ceremonial, or purely a civil law, or some combination of civil or ceremonial. What would you say to that? Okay, well, nine of the other commandments are repeated verbatim in the New Testament, clearly indicating that they are all still in force in the New Testament age, for the New Testament Christian. And I would also make the case uh, that the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, is also repeated. It's not verbatim, but it's clearly implied and taught that it is in force in the New Testament. We can get into that a little bit later. But my point is, why would God have nine commandments that are moral, that are binding throughout the ages, that are derived from his moral character, and insert a ceremonial, therefore temporary, commandment that only applies in the Mosaic period, the from the time of Moses until the coming of Jesus. It just doesn't make sense. Okay, so like when we're reading that section of Scripture where God's giving the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. we should think of them as all similar commandments of the same kind of class or same genus or exactly. what have you. Uh, exactly and, so. And, and so, and it doesn't make sense that it would be otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to say, well, the moral law, I'm sorry, the fourth commandment was uh, ceremonial, then you'd also have to say, well, thou shalt not kill is also ceremonial. But nobody's willing to make that case. Nobody's going to make that case who is saying. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, we shouldn't make the case with the fourth commandment either, Sabbath keeping. Right. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. So we're running a little late on time now, so that's going to be all that we're going to cover from the Old Testament. When we come to you next time, we're going to we're going to go into the New Testament and we're going to go show you scripture from the New Testament that shows you why the Sabbath is still binding for the new covenant believer today. Uh so that's what we'll do next time.